That, that an artist has to go to a canvas maker yeah. and try and get the canvas made and yeah. create one for it. I mean, yeah. even Willem de yeah. who would, who would, you know, and 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 Jackson Pollock who would paint on anything. Yeah, they still had the restrictions of the canvas. You see, yeah. so I think that what happens with pop music and to me the greatest pop record ever made, bar absolutely nada. Is like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. On this episode of Playtime, Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Leo Sayer from the caverns of his hotel room on tour in Florida. The man, his art, and the life in music. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Leo Sayer has not only lived an amazing life, but also forged a truly legendary musical career with iconic hits like When I Need You, Long Tall Glasses, and You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. His latest album, in a consistently solid repertoire of 16 albums, is titled Northern Songs, a bold re-envisioning of classic Beatles songs. And we're going to talk about that, brother. Um, Leo Sayer is definitely in his prime with some of his best material to date. The website is leosayer.com. It is so good to have you. Yeah, it's great. And it's I, I'm talking to you from Miami, so it's fantastic to be here in America again. You know, this is my, uh, although this is a, like a mini tour that we're doing at yeah. this moment, it's kind of a precursor to something that will be a bigger tour that will be going on at mm-hmm. the end of the year. So this is kind of finding out how we and the agents and, um, you know, everybody works together. And you know we 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 were coming over to do the rock and romance screws anyway out of out of uh, Miami. Let's plan out some dates. So we've added a few dates to that. But 
Honestly, this is my first tour I've worked out since 1984. Wow. I mean, I've done individual shows, you know, but nothing really, you know, nothing put together a run of dates. This is the first time since then, which is crazy, isn't it? So this is extra special, and I, I should let people know I, mm. I, I've I, I'm based in Chicago. I've got a lot of friends yeah. and fans in Chicago, even <laughs> though I, I I reach a worldwide audience. Uh, but I should let people know that you'll be performing live at the Arcata Theater in suburban St. Charles for yeah. uh, for an eight thirty show uh, next Friday, March twenty fourth. Uh, And that's at 105 East Main Street in St. Charles. Uh, The telephone number there is 630-962-7000. Or you can go to ArcadiaLive.com. You can go to my Facebook page where I've uh, I've posted links to directly to to the show. Have you performed at the Arcada before? No, no. uh, It's all new to me. Um, um, But I hear it's this beautiful theater, almost like Art Deco, you know, really old and... It uh, is very really nice, you know, good traditional venue. Yeah, 1926 it was built, so it has those it has those natural classical style acoustics. It's uh, gonna go off. It's a great <laughs> room, yeah. It's, it's gonna be uh, and Ron Onesti, uh, who who I owns spoke to a, Ron the other day, and what a what a lovely guy. He 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 gets very involved in not only being the promoter but the promotion yeah. as well. So yeah, he was, he was talking on for for radio. Um, uh, to me and, uh, you know, introducing himself. And mm-hmm. It's so nice to have a promoter like that who's really involved in every aspect of this show. He is know? so passionate, not only yeah. about about the theater, but about the music. And, and well, he's... we're going to do lots, of, lots more shows for his all of his places because he's got a great network as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, he's kind of building a building a, mm. a an empire where he sort of single handedly <laughs> revived classic rock, uh, bringing yeah, back absolutely. Night Ranger, yeah. Blue Oyster Cult, UFO, yeah. these glam rock bands like like Angel, <laughs> Foghat, and and Leo Sayer. Foghat, yeah, that's true. Foghat are with us on the boat as well. It's really? Oh. yeah. Yeah. You know, I I just had a conversation with uh, with Garnet Grimm from Savoy Brown. Uh, oh my God! Talk, talking about uh, <laughs> about the late great Kim Simmons, who we lost last uh, yeah, last he December. Can. He was a great guy. And Foghat got its start with mm, with mm. Savoy Brown, but uh, but well, what? I mean, look, there's there, there's still a few of us actual artists left. I mean, you, you know, you get a lot of yeah. fans, I think, and that's now the where yeah, there's very there's there's actually not none of the individuals are. Um, yeah. Our, our original members, but um, there's a, I, I think the, the interesting thing is that all of this music has kind of come around full circle to popularity again. It's not just the old fogies who are the same age as me or you, with respect. <laughs> you know, it's it's a younger audience as well as fascinated in this music, and that's what we're seeing. And it's really it's really great. It kind of maybe says something a little bit sad about the music today in some ways, but at mm-hmm. the same time. We had this golden age. I mean, we didn't have mobile yeah. phones, yeah. and uh, he said holding it up, you know, and, um, and 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 internet. We didn't have those things, so we were we were maybe more sort of relying on our total creativity than a system. I said this to somebody the other day. I said, yeah. you know, every now and then, every now, well, you, you see a new album, you know, by a Taylor Swift or something. With respect, they're great. You know, and there's so many people involved in the songwriting, the production, the engineering, the, you know, the marketing. They're they're tested (laughs) 
for for their marketing ability, right? There you go, exactly. So they fit a niche in a way yeah, that's already yeah. designed for them. And and I think that you know the lovely thing is so we used to go to the record companies and uh, and and they couldn't say a thing in a way to us. Mm-hmm. They just have to like it or not like it because mm-hmm. that's all they were getting. They weren't involved in the creative process, and and that I think is the reason why the music was so good at that time. So guys like Cohen, Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and Paul Simon would come up with an incredible bunch of songs on a record yeah. and they just say, hey, give it to us, you know. Yeah. And, and, a, and diverse, a, similar thing. <laughs> a, a diverse group of songs. I was going to bring this up a little, bit, right. a little bit later, but mm. you said something about the magic of being a singer-songwriter is that you can write and perform anything you you want but we're we're yeah. we're seeing that that's not that's not necessarily the case with a lot of artists who allow mm-hmm. the marketing side to drive to drive their their product yeah. and you have you've never done that you've always well, you've always been true to your vision yeah, I mean, it's, it's driven by my head, you know. Yeah, my yeah. Whole career. And heart. And so it comes from imagination and all of those things. I, I mean, sometimes I'm just thinking about something today because I noticed um, another lawsuit going on with uh, a current song. I'm not going to name the artist or the song or anything that sounds like something that was done before. So there's that element as well, you know, that, that it's a machine these days. And, you know, we, come, we just come from a different headspace. I mean, part of my reason for recording the Beatles on my 50th anniversary year, as yeah. it was in the UK last year and in Australia and other places, was, was to kind of pay tribute to the art and craft of this whole music scene. Because mm-hmm. there was nobody like the Beatles. I mean, John and Paul and George as well, because his songs are in there as well. You know, the craft of those songs is just incredible. Yeah. And I think that it's, uh, it's I try to interpret it in my own way, of course. The level of inspiration imbued in songs just mm. just isn't isn't there as consistently as as how you described the golden age of rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the late sixties, the early and mid seventies, and but well, I mean, I, I noticed it myself because artists yeah. come to me. I mean, there was a band called Travis. Yeah, and they had a song. Why does it always rain on me? 
And they said, well, if you hadn't written One Man Band, we'd have never written that because <laughs> basically you inspired that song. Well, everybody knows down like we're grown, you have to leap across the street. You can lose your life under a taxi cab. You gotta have eyes in your feet. You find a nice soft corner and you sit right down, take up your guitar and play. But then the lawman comes, says, move along. And so you move along all day. Well, I'm a one-man band. Nobody knows nor understands. Is there anybody out there wanna lend me a hand to my one-man band? For three days now I haven't eaten at all. My, my, I must be getting so thin. And dire straits. I mean, Mark Knopfler said to me, he said, without moonlighting, there'd be no dire straits because I was his favourite artist. No and, kidding. You know, he wow. just, and so he just kind of listened to those kind of songs that I was writing, these very autobiographical, often like this song Moonlighting, very wordy songs, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, he decided that after listening to that, he said, oh, you know, I could do something like Songs of Swing. He sees her at the same time every night at the Mexican discotheque. She gives him French kisses. stories into a song wow. um so so i, I kind of um, it's it's an honor that we inspired that indeed yeah, indeed like the beatles inspired me and and, well, and and elvis and all of that I, I really have to say, and we're we're gonna get we're gonna get to Elvis. We're gonna get to we're yeah, gonna get sure. to the Northern songs. Uh, we're gonna get to to a, a lot of your later albums, which I think are are some of your your very best work. Um, but I, I really have to say, this is this is such an honor. I grew up on you, yeah. and, and and by the way, in June I, I I turn eleven, just so you don't feel bad. Oh, um, that's cool. I'm 25. <laughs> yes. Good man. Good, good man. Have another 50 years for that, and it was pretty <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Did I hear that you're a Talk Talk fan? Oh, massively. Yeah, massively. And I, I, I made it my business to 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 get to know the guys. And um, what a great were, band. Yeah, and they were very reticent about you know um, um, the the communication thing that guys like me, you know, very outgoing. Uh -huh. um, I mean, me and Springsteen and Stevie Wonder would be a complete anathema to them in our <laughs> character, you know, because they were very retiring guys. But, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, and they were they were on they were they were on some uh, something of 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 an arc where back to that point about you they weren't being guided by by the marketplace 
they were taking their audience on a musical journey with absolutely, them. Absolutely, absolutely. Mark Hollis. Mark Hollis. Yeah. Mark is a genius, you know. I mean, he he's was, not a famous yeah. person. Yeah. And he never aimed to be a famous person, yeah. but he's the yeah. voice and he's the passion of that band, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and when I met Mark, you know, it was very interesting. It was very, he was kind of almost hard to talk to, you know, but I managed to get a lot of things because he knew who I was. And, you know, I suppose there was a kind of mutual understanding. these days in my music yeah. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm producing my own records mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all my songs solo rather than collaborating with uh-huh. writers which I always used to do all the way from David Courtney and Alan Matani to, to Albert Hammond and Tom Snow you know uh, but, but now I do it all myself and in fact I've just been invited to write again with Albert and I think I will I so enjoy writing by myself and creating everything not having to phone other people and getting on with it, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, for the guy who wrote One Man Band, that's a kind of very important edict to, to be able to be self-reliant, you know. But um, it's it's interesting that, you know, only now in my career I've, I've been able to stretch out um, further than the guy who was just a pop singer-writer and, and get into something a little bit deeper and, um, you know, mm-hmm. more passionate. I mean... You know, there's songs in in, in the recent catalog, a song about Julian Assange, you know, a, support mm-hmm. song about, a song called um, My City in Lockdown, which is all about the pandemic, you know, and how we're experiencing um, in Melbourne and Australia. Right now, we need a miracle. Everybody needs a break. This thing may be all messed up, but we know it ain't fake. Is looking like desperate Dan, but what can he do when there ain't no plan? It's all roughed up, stuffed up, monumental. I can't touch you and you can't touch me. That ain't the way life's supposed to be. We ain't numbers and dots, forget me nots. Delivered into rows like garden lots. Let me explain, no one's to blame. It's a virus and it's got no shame. It keeps coming and it won't stop. It's here and it stopped the clock. So we pray, find a way, make our escape through an unlocking. I'm able to take more serious subjects and write deeper things, uh, which I've always wanted to do. But you know, you get cast into a niche and it's very easy to slip into that. Well, you sustain it because. You know, when you've got a big record, when I went to Richard to work with Richard Perry in 1976, let's, uh-huh. let's do this. 
Um, mm-hmm. I was a singer-songwriter, singing all his own songs, very passionate about his own personal message, yeah. uh, and writing in the genre of pop, which I really love, because for me, the great art form of our business is the three-minute single, mm-hmm. or the two-minute 30 single, really. You know, to be able to put something like The Kings did in Waterloo Sunset, all of that passion, atmosphere, environment, yeah, you know, yeah. great story into a three-and-a-half-minute song. Dirty old river must you keep rolling Flowing into the night People so busy Make me feel dizzy Taxi light shines so bright But I don't Need no friend As long as I gaze on intensity, you know, you think of being a Simone, don't let me be misunderstood, you know, it's, to put something like that into three minutes of communication, it's a man's world, James Brown. Yeah. To put that into that little slot of time and yet invoke so much inspiration and so much wonder, it's like a movie in three minutes, you know, that was my, that was my art form, you know, and so I never really looked outside of that, I was really happy to do that. Um, when I went to see Richard Perry, he mm-hmm. said, I don't see you as a songwriter. I went, what? You know, we immediately got into arguments, actually. <laughs> you know, it was, so we, we, we did find some common ground because the thing was, he was going to bring me the greatest musicians I was mm-hmm. ever going to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, the A-team, the AAA team. You know, and so I hung in there and we agreed that we both loved song music in Motown. So... I, I was actually going to, to get on the plane when he actually told me, I'm like, Leo, Leo, just give me one last shot. I've got the band together. Turn the car around and come to Studio 55. So I cancelled the flight and went down there. We just postponed. I thought we'd postponed it for a... I was with my wife, Janice, and we said, I'll oh, let this hold on. See he's got to offer one last shot. And then if, we, if I don't like it, then we go. Yeah. And I was pretty adamant that I thought that I wouldn't like it. I really did. But when I walked in and the band started playing What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, mm. and I hit that microphone, and beside me was Jeff Picaro, Willie Weeks, uh, Larry Carlton, Michael Mardian, these incredible, John Barnes actually on piano, Marvin Gaye's mm-hmm. pianist, mm-hmm. and they're all ready to play, the whole band. And as soon as I hit the microphone, I knew that I had to do this. So I forgot my singer-songwriter roots in that moment and diversified into mm-hmm. something that lasted for a few years of let's find some great covers, let's, yeah, yeah. let's um, you know, let's, let, let's stretch out from just being Leo Sayre who writes all his own words. You know, it, 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 was, a, it was a journey, a, a fork in the road. Yeah, yeah. And I took that fork quite gladly, knowing that there'd be another crossroads <clears throat> later on where I could get back to my original mission, which is what I've done in the last few albums. And... and I'm, I'm very thrilled that you, you see that. And 
Indeed, indeed. And and to your point about three minute songs, mm. I, I will argue this. And and I've been doing I've been doing a lot of research about music for for a book that I'm almost finishing called The History of Light uh-huh. for the Artist, where I, I cover the ascension of the artists, uh, the the arts through uh, from the beginning of time to um, to mm-hmm. through the the Reformation. Um, that that there is an energy component inherent in pop music that that rises and peaks in that three minutes and even the longer songs uh some of the led zeppelin songs and and um those longer songs are are can kind of be broken up into into their three minute segment parts and Mm. and sort of the the rise and fall so those artists are are playing with the rise and fall of that energy component but that energy component really only last three four maybe five minutes and then and then it's it's done it's done for the artist it's done for the audience Mm. right think of bridge over troubled water yeah incredible explosion that happens at the end for something that starts off almost so minimalist you know yeah it's that's a perfect example i think that what is happening here is that is so exciting about the pop single is the restriction and the reining in of creativity. Yep. So, yeah. you know, a, a painter... There's a built-in structure. To, yeah, there you go. And, 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 and there's something you have to adhere to, and you've got to yeah. fit, as it were. Yeah. Look, yeah. a painter has to go to a... I, I've always found it, because you know, I was a frustrated painter. That's what I first wanted to be. That was my first thing I wanted to be. Uh-huh. Uh, and an abstract... You, painter, you studied as, you know. a, as a uh, yeah, as graphic artist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I ended up being a graphic artist because when I went to art school, they said, my father, who was uh-huh. a very... He said, I don't want him to be a bohemian. He's going to go into <laughs> something and get him a job. So I was moved into graphic art. You know, they listened to my father and they didn't listen to me that I wanted to create great structures and do wild things and uh-huh. you know, create pop art or whatever, you know. Anyway, and not have the restrictions. But the, it's interesting that, that an artist has to go to a canvas maker yeah. and find, get the canvas made and yeah. then create on top of it. I mean, yeah. even Willem de Kooning, yeah. who, would, who would, you know, and, and, and Jackson Pollock, who would paint on anything. Yeah. They still had the restrictions of the canvas, you see. Yeah. So I think that what happens with pop music, and to me the greatest pop record ever made, bar absolutely nada, is like a rolling stone by Bob Dylan. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all I'm kidding you. You know, we'd never heard yeah, yeah. that usage of the personal opinion and experience put mm-hmm. into a song like that. It was a 
It was a, a, an angry letter put into a pop song. And and it's it's one of the most enduring pop songs for it. And yet it doesn't really adhere to the standard rules of songwriting. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. The girl is over here, the guy's over here, the guy's got to get the girl, the girl's got to accept the guy. Yeah, all of that. I mean, you've got a lot of nerve to say you were my friend. What an opening line. You know? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I mean, I think that that is that that to me was. I mean, I was a Bob Dylan fanatic anyway. So uh, all during the folky years, you know. So when you hit that and did that, I mean, I just fell off my chair and I knew that that moment, this is what I wanted to do. He threw his whole art into something that was so restricted, so reined in, so limited in its format that he still rose above it. And, you know, later on, you've got to think of when Jimi Hendrix does All Along the Watchtower and makes that song explode. Yeah. Then you know, you're in, you're, you know you're in a good area. And I think that even an artist who doesn't want to have restrictions is a rebel politically as well. Mm-hmm. And I certainly mm-hmm. am. Very mm-hmm. left-wing, very kind of like opinionated, you know, very much uh, about um, uh, free speech and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And yet I see this medium in which I can encase all of that into this box. Or this yeah. circular plastic thing that is a record. <laughs> it's a thrilling restriction, yeah. you know, to, yeah. and, and, and you'll bounce off those walls that they provide for you, you know, interestingly, and it will pull you into the focus of the central thing, which is the message behind the song. Indeed, indeed. Um, you you were you were an Occupy, uh, or you wrote a song called Occupy. I was big in, yeah, in yeah. into the Occupy movement. We're going to get to that. We're, we'll we'll hold that yes, for yes. for a little bit here. Um, I'm very inspired by what they did. This is this is the fiftieth anniversary of of your first album, Silverbird. Yeah, uh, which was released. Uh, it, it featured uh, the show must go on, uh, and yeah. and a great great song that I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people remember but it should be a classic oh what a life Faces, stay with me, slam dunk of a rock song, brother. Um, Do you remember the writing uh, and recording of that album? But that's the peculiar thing. A lot of my biggest hits, and I'll bring in long tour glasses into this as well. Yeah. uh, Orchard Road is a, 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 they were all written, you know, I mean, Orchard Road never had a piece of paper. It just came out of my head. Long tour glasses, the same. And I Want a Life was never really written down. It was just, you know, Dave Courtney uh, played some piano, rock and roll piano, and 
I, I, I just wanted a song that I could sing on stage. And that was the, that was what they, you know. And that uh, amazes me because that song. I don't close till 10 and 30 tonight. Oh boy, <laughs> what a life, you know. It was just the frustration, I think, of being, you know, you know where you want to go. You know where, you, where you're headed. But, you, but getting there is so fucking frustrating. You know? <laughs> and, and that's what that song is about. that song at least the lyrics were were somewhat improv right totally totally i mean a mate wow. of mine had this wow. the austin healy sprite and yeah. i'd just been for a ride in it the day before and uh, I, I found myself singing that you know it's the last thing that you saw it just comes <laughs> into your mind at the microphone and and the same thing with long tour glasses i mean it was just a stream of these are all stream of consciousness things and i don't know where they come from i always think of book of white the Blues guy who used to say, yeah. I call my songs sky songs because <laughs> they fall out of the sky and I pick them up. I was traveling down the road, feeling hungry and cold. I saw a sign saying food and drinks for everyone. So naturally, I thought I would take me a look inside. I saw so much food, there was water coming from my eyes. Yeah, there was ham and there was turkey, there was dancing as a jam session in between yeah. other takes. While we were at Studio 55, no I think we were trying to cut When I Need You, and Richard was so pedantic and his, uh-huh. you know, perfectionist. And uh, uh-huh. of course, I, I, I thrill to his perfection. But at the same time, it's frustrating at the moment when you're doing it. And me and the boys, particularly Jeff Vaccaro, I mean, got a great drummer of Toto, no longer with us. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Jeff, Jeff and I used to kind of, we lived just up the street from each other in Laurel okay. Canyon. Okay. So, so we would drive in at different times, and we kind of like uh, we swap. We we made this kind of pact to what were you listening to this morning? You know, so we listened to you know yeah 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 K Rock or whatever the station was, K L O S or whatever. You know, on the way in, and we both heard this song that we were talking about. We got in by Shirley and Company called Shame Shame Shame. 
Don't stop the motion If you get the notion You can't stop the group Cause you just won't move Got my sunroof down Got my diamond in the back Put on your shaggy ring of And uh, the guy singing with his incredible, you didn't know if it was a girl or a guy, an incredible voice, you know. It was actually a girl, but it could have been a guy singing. Uh-huh. So. And I don't know, we were just raving about this song, so we were telling the rest of the guys about it, and Ray Parker Jr. knew it as well. Yeah. And he started playing a riff, and the next thing was we were jamming this thing, you know, in between takes of another song, and Richards, in the end, turns around and says, hey guys, come on, let's get back to work. You know, but... What we didn't know is that in the control room, he recorded the jam session. So, you know, this was about, went on for about 15 minutes. So, so you make me feel like time. dancing might never have been, if they, if they, no. if they were recording, it no, might absolutely. never have been the Grammy when yeah. he, when he hit Apparently, the I mean, flash to the control room at the same time as we're recording. And yeah. we're just shouting at everybody, get a tape you know, so he wow. knew, he, could, he got something, but he, he, he was cool about it, you know. And it's two weeks later that he played me the, the, the song. He said, now that is your hit. That is wow. special. You've just done something. And of course, this was, you know, and maybe after staying alive by the Bee Gees, but before Saturday Night Fever, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and, and all of those kind of real classic dance songs and the beat that the Bee Gees were doing with Arif Mardin. Mm-hmm. So we were ahead of the game and this was a new thing. said if you could write a chorus for that you have a smash and he he knew he guided it you know billy poncia was a, a a producer from new york who's hanging around the studio produced the first kiss record wrote songs uh, with ringo Starr, of course for, for 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 ringo's albums with with richard and um and i just said to him i said hey vinnie let's let's, let's try and write a chorus so we we sat down. We had five minutes, I think, before he had a bad back. He had to go to the chiropractor. Yeah. So this is all on the same day. Let's get this. Through. Let's get this done now, or it ain't going to work, you know. And so, fifteen minutes of jam session, and were added to the chorus that Vinny and I wrote. So the whole thing took twenty minutes. And the first words that came to my head were good enough. I have. Uh, I think I have walking a... the dog. So you know, Rufus Thomas. So you've got a cute way of. Like a dog hanging on a lead, you know. All uh-huh. So all these, you know, you use all the references that you, you think of. You know. I mean, See, I, I think that speaks to, I think that really speaks to an intuitive, <laughs> an intuitive ability at, at lyric writing. I speak with so many artists. Uh, and, and, and by the way, a, a very, very dear friend of mine, Ray Grant, uh, who was Grammy nominated for album of the year in 1994. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
he he's he's gonna die to hear to hear this conversation. Um, well, you know, I've, I've talked to Bruce Springsteen about similar things, and Bruce and I both have similar experiences with Paul Simon. You know, we 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 talked about this, and yeah, the, yeah, the intuitive. If you if you Paul says, you know, if you allow your intuitive side of your brain to kind of like lead you, you, you yeah. never go wrong. Yeah, you know? yeah. You do what you feel. And and sometimes, you know, I mean, both he and I, we talked about stories of songs that have taken years to write. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that you go back and forth and back and forth. And then one comes along. I mean, he had slip sliding away. He said, you know, that came in five minutes. You know, I mean, yeah, every now and then yeah. there's something that like that that just yeah. shoots in. I mean, we're, we're just about finished with the album Just a Boy, and I'm telling everybody about my experiences of the of the United States on my first tour. And I'm and I'm telling them this story about, you know, everyone's saying, you can sing, you can sing. And I said, no, I can't. I mean, you've got all this reading, you've got all these amazing singers. I'm just, you know, Aretha. It's like, I'm, no. And and yet they all said, no, no, Leo, you're great, you're great. So in the end, I just said, okay, I'll accept that I'm great. So, you know, I, can, I, I know I can dance. Of course I can dance, of course I can dance. I'm sure I can dance, I'm sure I can dance, I can dance. I can dance, I really hit the floor. Oh, it feels good. Look, I've been dancing. I did a two step, quick step. <laughs> it's inspired by also by Charlie Chaplin's movie. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, when he goes into the bar and he tries to dance and he's he completely improperly dressed, but he pretends that he is as good as them. And and that's it, you know, and that was me in the States. I had to pretend, I had to believe the bullshit that everybody was saying to me that I was a great <laughs> artist. Because I didn't feel that I was, you know, I just felt that I was a music fan who was lucky to be here. And so that's but you need to give yourself music. that credit. Of course, because that's what he does in the middle of the song. Yeah. So in the end, he says, you know, oh, no, wait a minute. You know, of course I can dance. Of course I can. You know, I, I feel good. I feel great. You know, coming to terms with what people expect of you. And that's what that song was all about. And just talking to somebody that day and then going to the microphone and Dave had this, da, 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 which I thought was a great little riff. You know, and that little rock thing to kind of follow it. And I started singing these words, and the boys in the band picked it up. And honestly, it's two takes. But where, where, you know, I, I talk with, uh, I also do a podcast for the Chicago Writers Association. Mm. So I talk with, I talk with artists all over the country and world. I talk with, mm. with singers and songwriters. Uh, and I always ask them, I, I've, I've got five books in print. 
<laughs> I always I always ask artists this: Are you tapping into? Are you tapping into a a, a universal stream of consciousness? Is it? Does it come from God? Does it does it come from someplace deep inside of you that you're that you've you've opened that well? Where does where does creativity come from? That's very interesting. I, I'd have to go back and quote Booker White as well. <laughs> you know, yet yeah. again. I mean, they literally fall out of the sky, these ideas. You don't yeah. know how you get them. But it was the same when I was painting, you know, I'd suddenly uh, you know, you you if you open your mind up. Mm-hmm. Um, something appears, you know. Oh my God! Big slab of blue just down there. Yeah, let's yeah, do it. yeah. You know. Um, so songwriting is like that, and, and I and I think creativity is like that. You know, I find creativity as well when I walk into a a new gig, you know, and I'm looking at and I see that. Hang on, that's interesting. And uh, the aisle down on the side there goes all the way down the stage. There's going to be some people sitting on the edge. If I take three steps off that stage, I can be sitting down there in front of the row with them. Uh-huh. And there's, if there's any empty seats, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing one song down there. So creativity is something you open yourself to, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, you know, and yeah. So you make things from, you know, the, uh, blocks and pieces of puzzle that are in front mm-hmm. of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How can I say that? You know, it's like a, it's like doing a raw section test or something like that or one of those things where you put blocks of wood together and find the the, the, put the shapes together so yeah, you, yeah. You, you, your whole being is alerted to what is possible and i think that that's it it's a it's a it's an open field an open forum and i and i think anything goes you can afterwards you can intellectualize about it but at mm-hmm. the moment of, of creation mm-hmm. i think you're just you're just you know taking in what the heavens give you. It maybe is God-given. I mean, my next album I'm planning at the minute, I've got two songs at the end of the album. Um, one of them's called Heaven, and the next one's called The Afterlife. And I'm thinking of that's going to be the album title because the song is all about how we ignore the dream of heaven. You know, yeah, it's right in yeah. front of us, and yet we mess up so much in our lives. Leo suffered a terrible accident at Wisconsin's Alpine Valley in 1977 and talks about being the very last person to speak with Elvis Presley before his passing. Sayer took a 14-year hiatus from recording, then came back strong. Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Leo Sayer and more of his music. For updates and notifications on future episodes, subscribe to Playtime and please feel free to share the podcast. For Playtime, I'm W.C. Turk.
sacrifice much tomorrow.